questions, comments, and and and, and forgive me, I, I'm not your normal sort of uh, normal, I guess. Uh, so I'm not your normal police instructor. I, I, uh, I dig a little bit deeper in some of these issues. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I mean, I, I, I really. Uh, you know, I, I put it to you. I couldn't be wrong about this, but I've looked at this uh, issue for quite a while. I started policing in seventy, I don't know, seven. So evolution of policing too is in my mind as well. Sort of past, present, and I can see part of the future here. So I've got a kind of a wide range of, of, of where we were, where we are done so far, what we're going to do, what we haven't done. So uh, I move around on the topic a little bit. So I hope I haven't been confusing in the presentations, if I have, forgive me. But uh, any, anything come to mind so far uh, that you've uh, heard? That any questions or any comments? Yeah. The Brown case in Maggie. No, no, I, I, I don't think I would work. We had, uh, you think it's a work value case, but I, we never worked at, and I think we haven't done it. I don't remember a traffic case. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't think we've done a work value case. Uh, you're case for the Somali family uh, out of Columbus, Minneapolis, and Nashville. Where they were bringing Somali women in and running them in, in through these prostitution rings, we've had that happen. You know, most trafficking cases victims are women. You know that it can be men, but most often. Oh, yes, ma'am. So my question has to do with the fact that throughout the presentation. You speak more of domestic abuse in terms of the physical violence. Uh, the, the police here or so the police looking at psychological abuse. Well, I think it is evidence. I think any, any kind of emotional, psychological, socio-psychological abuse is part of it as well. I mean, it's why we call it abuse. Um, if you're trained well, you'll use it. You'll write it in the report when you see it, like coercion, intimidation, fear. Um, and if you're not, you're still back to the old injuries. Where are the injuries? Um, but as I said earlier, coercion is becoming a bigger uh, issue for domestic violence investigations around the world. Laws are being changed right now because of it. How do you determine coercion? How do you determine psychological abuse? It is kind of the next steps for some policing. But I think we've always should have looked at it carefully. There's no criminal charge for psychological abuse. Um, not yet, but it's it's coming. Uh, domestic abuse, 
the definition in most states includes it, but it doesn't single it out as a singular charge. But uh, we're getting there. Why, why would you ask the question? Yeah. And you're talking about foreign citizens coming here worried about being arrested. Yeah. Um, we went through this with, we have a largely ocean population in Nashville. And we went through this with, uh, until we finally got out the population and talked to the women. But we found out when the, when the families came into the country, they were being, went through an orientation that said, you'll get arrested for domestic abuse. So we had several cases where the abusers were starving the women to death. Uh, one, uh, her neighbor brought her in, she could barely walk, she like she stepped out of death camp. And when we prosecuted him, he told us, he said, you would arrest me if I hit her. So I didn't let her eat. We charged him with felony assault because of starvation. Um, so I think our expertise in elder abuse has helped us in this because there's a lot of psychological elder abuse. There's a lot of passive neglect. There's a lot of active neglect. There's a lot of denying you your medicine, denying you your rights to religion, denying you freedom, denying you transportation, denying your right to see your doctor. We've got some experience with that. Um, but I think we should include it in all of our cases. I, I just, I'm one of those people who thinks that there's a lot of evidence there that we're not presenting the courts. After all, the courts, they don't know. So um, I'm with you on psychological abuse. I think it's, it's a, it's certainly, let me say this, it certainly, it forced us 20 years ago to look at stalking a different way. Because the stalking laws, you all remember the stalking laws even in Virginia, had this language about substantial emotional distress. What is substantial emotional distress? I mean, that's not something that we identified in prior police investigations, but when you ask victims, are you afraid? And then you'll often hear, yeah, and I don't know where he is. I don't, I, I don't know what's gonna happen next to me. Uh, I'm now seeing a doctor because of the stress and strain. I'm now drinking because of the pressure. I now carry a gun, I now have a dog. I, Change my alarm. All these things, people don't do this unless there's some substantial emotional distress being brought on by the offender. So we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. So, yes, ma'am. Um, I'm just curious about yeah, now I can't speak to this area. Oh. I can't, I'll, I'll, I'll open this up for everybody. I can't speak to Loudon's uh, translator services. Uh, but, I mean, what we heard when we focused with women here in the state, the undocumented immigrant women said this over and over again. Almost the first thing they said to us in all the groups up and down the state, they said, we can't tell you our experience in your language. And you have to think about that for a minute. I mean, imagine if you dropped in the middle of Mexico City and, you, and you're a victim of crime, 
could you tell the Mexico City police who speak Mexican, Spanish, excuse me, uh, and don't speak English, could you explain to them? It'd be hard to do. So we have to put ourselves in those shoes. But the other part of this is, what's the language translation service? Like I've been in communities where the local CCR yearly goes out and looks for bilingual speakers. They usually go to the university. They look for German, and, uh, you know, Spanish, and other languages, Portuguese, and they'll find those speakers in that community. Then they'll give them a free cell phone. They'll have a volunteer language base, uh, database of too. But the language line is the one I think that most people use. Does that sound right in the state? Is that what you all are using? How difficult it is. We've tried to reach a translator since we first year and have a little push and it gives people a voice message. It's very difficult. Other times, sometimes it's just very difficult to be translated. And as the third party, that's what happens. Body language, the way their expression is, this is my words. So you're sort of translating the translation at that point in terms of the information that's being provided. I asked this because um, I met with a patient once and she was a victim and she called from police and she ended up getting arrested because of and she didn't language barrier, she didn't speak English. So I've always wondered like she got arrested for what? She got arrested. She doesn't know because I guess I don't know whatever he said, but she ended up getting arrested. She was I've always wondered like what happened to these cases. It, it's a it's a national problem. Um, the again the language line is the one that's used by the country, but it's really not sufficient. My age, again, I'm going back to my own agency. We finally started hiring officers who spoke Spanish, who spoke the ocean, um, spoke Arabic, uh, because we've got such a large Kurdish population in Nashville. And the other thing too is, I mean, we have the largest Kurdish population in the country in Nashville. When polling place during the Iraqi elections. We had to learn how to police in a um, in a in a home where you had to respect going to the van first before going to her. And that didn't mean you weren't arrested, but the culture had to be appreciated. That has to be trained into your police curriculum. But any of your domestic violence programs, uh, I'm not sure how you all you all provide language translations. Depends on the language. So there's a possibility. It's a big problem. I mean, again, um, it's an easy target for an offender. Can't speak the language. That's really become evident over the last three, four years of victims wearing the uh, Bellingham, Washington chief. We had him in our class, and this came up. The Bellingham is just north of Seattle, and you have a lot of um, you know, Eurasian, 
Southeast Asian families up and down the Northwest Coast. Uh, plus, there's a lot of uh, Hispanic folks moving into the community, and the Hispanic advocate told the police chief, they're not going to call you. They're just not going to call you. And he had some Spanish-speaking officers, and he had told them that. He said, I don't understand. What's the problem? And she said, they just don't trust you. So he had a big meeting with all of his chiefs, all of his captains, and said, we have a couple of Spanish-speaking officers, so how do we do this? And they said, well, we don't understand. We, we have really fluent-speaking uh, officers who come to the scene 24 hours a day. And the chief said, we have that service? It's, oh, yeah, the Border Patrol. So, I mean, they got it. They realized, wait a minute, there's no hello, you know, Bellingham policeman. I get a bus ride with Juarez. Wasn't working. So, um, but don't give up on it. I mean, I, the time now to look at resources for languages today, because your next case is waiting on. The, the police report for 85. Good luck. And we forget about them. Obviously, they have they have a right to these services as well. Anything else? All right. Yep. Sorry, yes, ma'am. Transitional housing is. Um, been around for a while. It's not in every community. Um, there's some Wichita, Kansas. It's got a really, really nice one. They built an entire apartment complex for transition. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma's got a really nice transitional housing program. Um, Jefferson County, South Denver, they closed down their shelter. What they did is they took the money that they were running to run the shelter, they hired them at they got a different model there where an advocate mentors a group of women, rapid housing, food, shelter. They get women to safe places, find apartments. So they do away with the emergency shelter process, but they stay along with the mentor. And what they told me was they were cycling women through 90 days, 90 days, 90 days. They were leaving. They were back in the program again for another shelter. If they stayed longer with an advocate, that means they were more likely to get all the services they need in therapeutic services. So there's a lot of different models out there, but transitional is a, is a big event. I tell you, I've watched women going this program, uh, my wife's program, and come in with nothing and then leave with everything. Because you've got two years work with them. And, and to you visas, people here in the country, that's allowed because the police chief has to sign off on it. 
which means you have to have an attorney and legal aid does a lot of that work here in Virginia. So, but to have somebody to do it, you know, full time, it's a big deal. We were talking about right about some women being sent back to countries where they have honor killings still, and that can happen in Pakistan, Afghanistan, places like that. that that's a real reality for a lot of women. Your, your population you're working with. Um, so, you know, when I look at CCR, here, here's my opinion on CCR. This is tailor-made for CCR. You've got a problem in the community around police training, pickup services, language, you know, issues. The CCR answers that question. Find um, the whole victim-centered approach is about that as well. You know, victim-centered is about letting the victim be part of the solution as well. So, um, if you belong to a community coordinated response, that's a better solution because you can sit in a room. It's kind of like having a high-risk assessment team. High-risk assessment teams are springing up all over the country now. And they look like you. You could be a high-risk assessment team. And the way it would work is that I would bring you a case and give it to you to analyze. Is it housing? Is it transportation? Is it food? Is it prosecution? High-risk assessment team would look at that because of fear of murder, basically. It's, it's, it's sort of a looking at a homicide before it happens. And that's what high-risk assessment teams do. Okay, all right. So, um, real quick, I'm gonna run through these real fast. Obviously, we already talked about this, body language. Certainly, you want the police to understand their own body language and the body language of victims. History of abuse, 911 calls about protective orders. Um, neighbors and witnesses, if they'll talk to you, if they don't talk to you, that is significant. Uh, neighbor killed trying to protect a neighbor. One of our cases in Nashville. People will call on loud music. Sometimes they won't call on domestics because they're worried about what may happen after that. Um, that's what happened in Texas with the five officers shot. Um, excited utterances, yelling, screaming, blurting something out. Acceptable hearsay in court. We use that. Uh, the crime scene, I think, is your victim is your biggest crime scene. And then injuries. Now, we could spend a year on this. We're not going to. Um, but that's part of it too, but it's not the only thing. Now we're expanding it a little bit. There are brain scientists now that are, and this is even harder. To, I, you know, if we want another level to talk about, uh, it seems hard to talk about. This is one traumatic brain injury. Now, brain scientists are telling us here in the US and Canada, they think the number is about 80% with domestic violence victims. And with traumatic brain injury, got comprehension problems for the victim. And the reason I put this slide up is because the Ohio Domestic Violence Network, for about three years, worked on a guide sheet for advocates and officers to determine whether the victim you're talking to has traumatic brain injury. You can download this from their website. It's called Visible Injuries. They're now gearing up in Ohio to train police in how to determine this. Um, now, traumatic brain injury usually is brought on by blunt force. You know, a lot of doctors will tell you the first blow is pretty bad, the second and the third, it gets worse and worse. And what happens, it's, there's a, several other reasons for traumatic brain injury, but blunt force is one, strangulation can be one as well. If you think about strangulation, what often happens in a strangulation case, the offender's got the victim and they're
traumatic brain injury. Strangling someone, cutting off the blood supply to the brain can bring on a traumatic brain injury. Um, and it doesn't take much at all to do this. So I'm reviewing police policies regularly. Because they've got that kind of brain injury. Um, and just a few of the signs uh, headaches that never go away, one pupil larger than the other, drowsiness, speech slurred, shaking or twitching, loss of consciousness. By the way, this is the loss of consciousness also should be documented for. I don't know what happened. You'll hear this. I was standing up one minute and I was a little poor the next. That's somebody that strangled my consciousness. And they urinated, they defecated, they vomited. You may have that as well. And once that happens, look, when you start ingesting your own vomit because you're being strangled, then the vomit doesn't go out of your mouth. It goes back down off in your lungs. So you've got an offender strangling the victim, causing traumatic brain injury, plus maybe causing a hemorrhage, plus maybe forcing undigested food into your lungs. That sets up pneumonia. You can die from that. So there's all kinds of problems with strangulation. But traumatic brain injury is another. This, by the way, this is higher than the NFL, uh, 80%. That's pretty extreme. Talked about this a little bit already, but I'm just going to cover this real quick. And this is what the offenders do. The officers, they intimidate the officer. They intimidate the victim. They isolate the officer. They isolate the victim. Uh, oh, wait, let me just show you what it looks like. If you've never seen anybody taser them, this is what it looks like. Single officer response, deputy by himself. Guy was drunk, trying to intimidate the officer. The officer's trying to de-escalate him. It didn't work. And then the whole thing's being filmed by somebody other than the police. Listen to the voice of the woman filming this, though. This is what is interesting about this case. You had a domestic violence vendor, intimidate the victim, intimidate the officer. Oh. I did not Get up. Just stay down. Come on now. I was your friend all until now. No, I want to record this and go.
I just want you to know what I've been putting up with. <laughs> Attitude I've been putting up with. I know, but you know what, Dave? You deserved it because you were chasing him around. So I heard the deputy say, don't get up. Tell him, say, don't get up. But the thing about this case is she's the wife. She said, I just wanted to see what I've been putting up with. It's like, damn. Can you ride with us the rest of the night and feeling everything else? That's pretty, Bob took a lot of courage to do that too, Bob. But I mean, it just shows you, and, and this is not news to the officers. Come on, we've all been intimidated by these people before. But are we writing that in the report? That's key, I think. Are, are we writing down the isolation? Keeping, not, not the victim being isolated, keeping the police from the victim. You'll hear this, by the way, elder abuse, famous with it. I'd like to talk to your mother. Your sister called. She's malnourished. Where's your mom? Oh, you can't talk to my mother alone? Really? Why not? Well, uh, she's got a heart problem. What am I supposed to do? Is that boo? I'm here to find out what's going on. I'm not going to scare your mother. What's wrong? They don't want you the room unless they're there. That's the way to isolate somebody. You see it all the time. So, isolating the police from the victim. Oh, you can't talk to my kids. Nope, nope. We're done. Maybe not. Really? Why not? Well, I just don't want you to. Um, Afraid of what? I'm afraid of being discovered. Right. And here's the thing, too, and I, I, I want to mention this now. I, I had a moment with a chief out of Texas not that long ago. Hutchins, Texas chief, little small town. We were talking about this. You know, said, you know, you see things up front that like this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why are they raising hell? Why are they screaming? What are they so excited about? Why are they meeting me in the driveway? Right. So here we're at this training. It was police uh, in Abilene. And he had a cutting out of the local paper. It was a case where his officers arrested the guy for abusing his daughter. And, but it was much more than that. He said, and it, I, I use it sometimes in police training. He said, you know, my officers went to the scene. The neighbors called. They said they were abusing one of the daughters. And they got on the scene. And, and they, the family came out and met my officers in the driveway. Man and woman, very nice, six-year-old girl. They introduced themselves. They all shook hands, you know. And the senior officer said, you hate to be here, but we got a report of a child abuse. Is it, do you have any more children? It's, oh, yeah, we have an eight-year-old, but she's not here. And the senior officer said, well, just talk to my partner. I'm going to go in your house. He said, no, you're not. So he jumped in front of this Texas officer. Well, this is, this. let me say it again. He jumped in front of a Texas officer. So the guy, the, the officer, was trying to find out when the kids were okay. So he... Um, he uh, he picked him up and he directed him to the ground. He said, "Sir, would you lay down here?" <laughs> and respectfully gave him, you know, some jewelry. Um, and and then he went in. By the way, and um, the chief said, "Mark, he went in a two-story house. He looked at where he couldn't find the little girl. On the way out, he came down a stairwell and looked under it." And they capped it off on the back end with some plywood. He thought, what is this? So he took his wife. There was a little door in this plywood. He opened it up, and there she was. She was inside this little dark hole in the stairwell. And the doctors told the chief she'd been in, uh, in this little hole for four years. Right. And she weighed 25 pounds when they waited to burn her. Eight. How, how, how big are eight-year-olds? How much do they weigh? A lot more than 25. Yeah, 
covered in lice, feces. And the chief's telling me this story. I, I'm just, I'm a nervous wreck listening to this. I'm thinking, how many times have I been in a house where I didn't look everywhere? You know, this kind of stuff kind of drives you crazy as a police officer because you think, damn, I was fighting this guy on the front porch. I saw a big boy on the front yard. Did I see any kids? No. Where were they? What did I miss? Because this is the thing about this kind of offender. Let me distract you with me and you so you don't see somebody else. This is isolation. Now, mom and dad are both at Huntsville State Prison now. Uh, but um, this is what they do. This is the isolation should be reported. The prosecutor should know all this. I guarantee you get a good prosecutor. Put me on the stand. Let the prosecutor ask me, what does it mean when you hear that someone's isolating you from a victim. What do you think about that? Well, there's a reason for it. They're trying to hide something from me. I've never met an effective police officer who wasn't curious. You gotta have a heavy dose of curiosity. Now, these offenders are dependent on you not to have any curiosity at all. That's when you see somebody, my wife's the shower, you can't talk to her. It's just amazing, right? And then, and I had to promise I would never call the police again. Like, swear. You know, he couldn't trust me. So then to have the police come, he was shocked. And my ex like stood back into the hallway so that you couldn't see him from the front door. And he was like, and all of that. And I was really scared because he's completely capable of doing that. The officer that thinks she's refusing my help or that she's not taking the course of action that we think is the most appropriate Think again, because it may not be the most appropriate for her. And statistically, arresting him is no guarantee that she will survive. Issuing an order of protection is no guarantee that she will survive. Now, by the way, that, I didn't introduce him. That's Neil Webdale. Neil runs the National Fatality Review Institute at Northern Arizona University, funded by the federal government. And what Neil Webdale's been doing for the last 25 years is reviewing domestic murder all over the world. And when he says there's no guarantee here, he, he knows this very well. Which brings up the other part, and I think I mentioned this a little earlier, the very moment that the offender knows there's been a contact between the police and the victim, the clock is ticking here. This is such a deadly, dangerous time for everybody involved. Because now they're exposed. Exposure is not what they want. They do not want to be exposed. And this could be a really dangerous time for the victim. Economic abuse, and we've heard offenders, you know, taken away. Is the, is the building shaking on them? You know, the older you get, things happen. You don't think, well, it's just me, you know, I'm having some kind of old person moment, you know. But the building is shaking. Yeah, I've had those moments. But anyway, it's still shaking too. There must be somebody right above the projector. So you'll hear this. This is the guy call, by the way. I like this one. Oh, you know how these women are. They're spending my money. We hear that. Your money. My money. money. And they, like, this is not a crime, but it's a clue, right? You got somebody isolating the victim. You ask the victim about money, the victim says, What money are you talking about? I don't have any money. I have no way. I don't have any money. The person that has the credit. Then they'll ruin your credit. So, it's interesting. We've seen a lot of these kind of cases. Hit that person that gets gloms on the victim's credit. It happened. It's just it's bad. 
So often domestic violence cases or incidents involve some level of financial abuse. And that can range from using their credit cards or ruining their credit to putting things in their wives or their girlfriend's names that they're unaware of. That makes it really hard to separate. So economic abuse, this is, this is what it looks like. And the whole male privilege, we've talked about this already. Uh, I like the pants for at least to call them when you're talking to them, they're pulling their pants up. This is symbolic. I wear the pants. You fail me. Yes, that was. What's going? What's going on today? Well, let me tell you something. I wear the pants. I used to be a play back them. So you're the boss. You wear the pants, right? Good. So if you're the boss, how'd your son's arm get broken tonight, boss man? You're in control of that, right? Don't you in control? Then know about that control. And this is that sensitive male ego. Sometimes you see. Not all men understand me, but it can be a real clue for you. And then what some offenders have told us: the fastest way to control a police officer is piss them off. Now, there's some truth in this because there's something primitive in a police officer's brain, and I don't know how it got there, but I call it the witty comeback program. And if you fall for this, you know, you'll hear, I, I, you, I work, you work for me, I'll have your badge, I'm your boss. You know, and then after a while, you know, you say, really, you are, I do work for you. Uh, uh, but you know, uh, you are a taxpayer, and I kind of calculated. What you paid me last year, and it comes to four cents. Here's your money back. Now that's a complaint with a sergeant. So I mean that's an eight-hour complaint right there. Now you're in trouble, right? But you know, the trick here is let me get you to that point where you'll say something like that. These people are not stupid. Let me pull you in. This is the old bait and switch we've seen many times. Let me pull you into an argument. Let me pull you into a fight. Gotta look at the noise up front. Right, there's something behind it, always something behind it, never fails. And then the last thing, you know, denying and blaming, it's not, they're crazy, it's all what it is. And then using children, we've already talked about that. Um, and I, you know, talk days about using the children, but it certainly happens. And I think I, I told you all earlier, you know, what my brother and I had finally done. You know, we got to the point where we, we didn't, the police were not an option for, for our family. I think I mentioned, you know, we put poison in his wine. I, I tell you, it's really amazing. I said my brother was 12, and, and we actually thought about killing him with a knife, you know. So, you know, we thought, well, boy, if he goes to sleep, and we'll stab him while he's sleeping. And it sounded pretty good, you know, at first. And then we thought, well, the police hit him in the head with sticks, and it doesn't kill him, so stabbing him will just piss him off. So we got to do something else. So we found some bug spray. We put it in his wine bottle, put it on his nightstand. He woke up about an hour later. He's in the living room. Drink, he drank all of it. Drank every bit of it. We're sitting in the room with him. I mean, we're what, 10 feet away from him. I was watching him drink the bug spray. It was that old black flag. You know, that black flag bug spray. I'm thinking, damn, this kills bugs. It should kill him. He should be dead. I asked my brother, and I said, when's he going to die? And my brother said, I don't know. And I said, well, if he's not going to die, I'm going to go outside and play now. He's <laughs> like, that's so normal every day. Like, yeah, it's like, when I think about it, they good God. What in the world? So, if he died, the police would have come to our house and we would have gone to jail. They would have arrested us. And I would have, been, I would have gone into juvenile holding cell. This is 1962. They'd have probably put us in a holding cell with a bunch of young adults. I'd probably been beaten more likely raped. I'd have graduated the adult prison system. I wouldn't be here today. No, there's no way I'd be here today. I'd have been a predator. I, 
I saw my face on I don't have any children over and over and over and over again. But that didn't happen. Uh, we made it out. We we just barely, barely made it out. And it's really something too to run with the clothes on your back. That was a whole other thing. My brother ran away at 16, joined the Marine Corps at 17, went to Vietnam at 18. And my mother and my sisters and I ran in the middle of the night. And we got out and survived it. But I, you know, I think back on those years as, as a kid, of all the things that I saw, of never being interviewed by the police, nobody stopping to talk to me. Uh, and by the way, I think if they had, I would have probably said, oh, I'm wonderful. <laughs> you know, I'd have probably said, everything's okay here, man. Get, go, keep moving. I you nothing to see here because the thing with a, a large family, a lot of kids, I've noticed this with cases that I've worked as a case officer, they protect one another. Have you ever seen a group of kids protect one another? Yeah, it's interesting, that dynamic, you know, where they'll all play off one another and they'll say, no, everything's okay here. He doesn't know what he's, he's the youngest. He's, he doesn't know what he's saying. That's not right. Um, we had a, we arrested one of Vanderbilt's football coaches, ex-Philadelphia Eagle. Um, and the brother from New Jersey called my office and talked to me. He said, are you the DV guy? I said, yeah, I look down in here. He said, my sister, he's going to kill her. He lives in Nashville. He's a Vanderbilt football coach. Said, you need to help her. He's going to kill her. Okay, we'll take care of her. I sent two detectives out. They were married 13 years. They had 12 children. You know, which brings up, you don't think much about this because this is not something you hear in police trainings, but controlling your, your reproductive part of your body, you know, your, this is what they do. You've got no control over your, your children. That's not how it works. You don't have any choice, right? Uh, you do what you're told to do. If you, if you have a lot of children, you have a lot of children. Now, this is not, uh, again, something you pick. She didn't either, by the way. But she told my detectives she fell down, and so did seven of the children present. They came back and they said, we don't have a case. I mean, the whole family saying it was an accident. Called the brother back, told him what happened. He said, you got to get to her doctor. I said, the doctors don't, aren't going to talk to me. He said, you got to tell her doctor. Uh, he's going to kill her. I called her doctor. And just out of the blue, I said, look, I know I'm a cop. You, you don't have to talk to me. Uh, I know you've got, you've got uh, absolutely patient-client privilege. I would never ask you to violate that. But I'm going to tell you what I know about your patient. And you tell me uh, what you might think about doing here. I, I think you need to maybe have a talk with her. Maybe you, maybe you can get her to come in. He didn't say much. About a week later, he walked in her office with, with her medical file. Is this sick? And this is what happens often. We don't see that part of it. You know, the studies on this, on the medical footprint, gastrointestinal, cancer, like over and over and over again. The things that happen, long-term things happen. Victims are really horrific. And of course, she had no control over her, her body. It was not hers anymore. And we charged it. And they ended up got him a big law firm representing um, the dream team, they called it. Well, they turned out to be a nightmare because we had a dream team too, prosecutor. And when we prosecuted him, it, it, she testified for him. And in the middle of the testimony, I, I, it's really interesting. In the middle of the testimony, the judge stopped her and said, ma'am, you, you are in this courtroom telling me that these detectives who work for the Domestic Violence Division came to your house and fabricated a police report. That's not what they do. He said, I know what's going on with you. You just violated the law in my courtroom. You're lying on the stand under oath. 
But I'm going to excuse that. This is what the judge said. I'm going to excuse that because I know exactly what you're doing. You're trying to stay alive because you're looking at the offender right in front of you. So you've just validated the suspicions of the officers to make an arrest on your husband by exhibiting this kind of fear in my courtroom. That's when you really get it. That, I, that just makes all the difference in the world. I can't tell you what that meant. And we prosecuted him successfully. Got her out. I don't know where she is today, but we got her out. We got her children out as well. So you may have these families with children that are all unified saying nothing's going on. That could very well happen. It's just an amazing thing to happen. Um, so there you go. Now, I've got more, but we're at, we're at a, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you this too. We just finished, say just, it's about a year and a half now. We did a training, roll call training film for IACP. This is on YouTube now. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy how this worked out because we went around the country and we filmed officers doing their jobs and got a lot of body camera footage uh, from cops on DV calls. We talked to advocates and judges and, you know, uh, prosecutors. And it's 40 minutes broken up into 10-minute segments, especially for police roll call training. And you can watch it on YouTube or you download my ACP. So take a, take a look at that as a resource for you as well. This is for everybody, not just not just police. But, all right. So top of the hour, let's take about 10. This is our last break, and I'll try to put two topics together in the last hour of it, and then we'll talk more. Right now, take a break with some water, stretch, and smoke a joke. Come on back. Don't smoke a joke. <laughs>
Some disturbing things. I'm <laughs> 
I'm going to mix a couple of things together here for you. Um, but I, th I did want to ask this question. Did any of you get a chance to fill out the uh, the law enforcement first line supervisors training on violence against women leadership survey? Did you get a chance to look at the survey in your in your in your packet? And we, this is for police, but I find it be interesting for the rest of you to see it as well. Um, so we're doing a lot of diagnostic work now with police departments, looking, you know, inside agencies, trying to figure out the better, better methods, the better trainings, the better policies, the better procedures. Did any of you get a chance to, to fill this out? What'd you think? What was your first impression? Not sharing with us when you filled it out, the leadership survey. What what'd you think about it? Definitely some points to ponder. I don't know that we roll call train on this that frequently, maybe like what you I love roll call training. I, you know, I, and we, we, by the way, we've got roll call training templates that I'll send you. It's really a 10 to 15 minute lesson plan. But the thing about roll call training, if you can do it correctly, you can do anything strangulation, interview techniques.
in science. I just finished two, I did a two-year project for Chicago. I did every single 22 patrol stations, five shifts in each station. I did all um, from 4.30 in the morning till midnight at all 22 precincts. And the reason Chicago Police wanted me to do this is that they wanted to get the officers to write a better report on strangulation. So we did a 15-minute roll call training uh, presentation on strangulation for first responders. And then they, the analysts, I didn't know people did this, they counted the number of words in a report before the training and after the report to look at retention. And this is what sergeants should do as well. You do a roll call training, you want to sharpen the skill, see if it's being used in the field. So I'm a big uh, roll call training advocate. I think it, I think it works. Any other, anything else that came out of the survey? That, what's your impression on this? What do you think? Anything at all? All right, well, look, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot. I, I, don't be shy, but think about taking this back to work. If, if you're a sergeant and you've got a, you've got 10 men, 10 women, um, think about sitting down with them and going over this survey. If you're lieutenant or captain, think about bringing your lieutenants and your sergeants in to do this with them. What we found at IACP by doing this, it gets the conversation started about who we are in law enforcement, how we feel about violence against women, how we feel about domestic violence and sex assault, human trafficking, stalking. And then do we have a common vision? You know, what, what a good leader in policing does. And I, I've had some really good ones and I've had some bad ones too. And I kept books, you know, I kept my books. I kept the bad book and the good book. And the bad book was all the supervisors I worked for who I didn't care for. And I kept up with their bad habits. And all the ones that I liked, I kept up with theirs. And as I moved up in rank, I, I tried to, you know, follow the good book of the good supervisors. And good supervisors, you know, you can depend on them. They, they, they're ethical. They know the right answer often. They guide you the right way. But what's critical is they've got a vision. Leaders have a vision. And if you're a really, really good leader, you help everybody have that vision together. It's a common vision. And the common vision is obviously doing a better job around domestic sexual violence because this leads to murder. I mean, I, I, I don't, again, I don't mean melodramatic, but this is just the way it is. So, so let me take you down this road just for a little bit. I'm, I'm going to modify this course a little bit for you. I'm just going to give you the kind of cliff notes, but I'm not a lawyer, obviously. But I'm an expert witness. I've testified for police, for police departments. I've testified for victims in court, state, federal. So I got a kind of a general idea of what the law kind of how it works. And um, when we get sued, um, and I, this is pretty simple, okay? This is a hillbilly kind of a version of this. When we get sued in policing, it's because we usually did too much. Too much lead, too much pursuit. Too much restraint, too much search and seizure, um, too much something. That's a general lawsuit for law enforcement. But when it comes to domestic sexual violence and stalking, police get sued because they said you didn't do enough. And why this is critical is because the Virginia law is very clear 
and what it says you must do for victims. There are things in the Virginia law, like the Tennessee law, the Texas law, the California law, that don't just have a description of the crime. It is a mandate in the law of things you've got to do under the law. That changes it a bit. Because you can't change the law as a police officer. You can't just decide, well, I know I've got to do that, but I'm not going to do it today. That's a recipe for a lawsuit. And the other part of this is the courts have pretty much ruled on this, uh, very much in favor of the plaintiffs in lawsuits against police. And here, here's the way it works. The courts will, again, I know the lawyers in the room, so be kind to me, all right? The way I look at it, there's two kind of relationships the public is in with the police. One is general in nature. Some states call it uh, sort of the public duty doctrine, where let's say Molly's in the parking lot, Molly gets mugged, and the police arrive on the scene, take the report, and the police officer says, Molly, you got mugged in the parking lot of the police academy. The building's full of cops. She sues you. Well, because you didn't protect her. It goes to court. The judge says, Molly, um, did you call the police? No, I didn't. So they didn't know you are getting mugged. No, they had no idea, but they were nearby and they should have protected me. Well, the judge is probably going to dismiss this case and say, Molly, sorry you got mugged, but you were in a relationship with the police who were sworn to protect you, but it's general in nature. You can't hold them accountable right, for that. That's scenario one. Scenario two, Molly comes to this door and says, help, help, I'm about to be mugged. And we say, Molly, can you give us about 45 minutes? Now we got a problem. And this is critical about this. The very moment that Molly reached out to police with a specific risk of harm, in the eyes of the court, very often state and federal, you are now in what they call a special relationship. Now, when you're in a special relationship with a citizen, courts want to know this. What did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do about it? Simpson versus Miami, protective order on file. He violated it. Miami dispatcher verified the order. Officers went to the scene. They stopped him from running down the street. They arrested him for violating protective order. They're on the way to the booking room. The offender talks the officer into letting him go. I know you're thinking, what in God's name? None of you all would do this. He went right back to the house and he killed her. Family sued the Miami police. And the Florida Supreme Court said this to, to every officer in Florida. The moment a judge signs an order of protection for relief of a victim of domestic violence, you and that victim in that jurisdiction are now in a special relationship. Whether you know it or not, the court is ordering special service for this citizen. Therefore, you're the only one to serve the order. That sounds unfair, but the question for police departments is, do you know who has an order of protection on file in your jurisdiction? So the special relationship kicks into place. And by the way, the judges will go through the old four bridge test. Were you sworn? Did you fail that duty? You know, were, were, were there damages? And were you the proximate cause? But for your inaction, this happened. So that's kind of the way we're sued in these kind of cases. And, and by the way, liability, I think it's, it, I have always believed this is, is a good thing in a certain kind of way. This is going to sound kind of bad, but I think it's just, it's just the way I feel. You know, smart people learn from their mistakes. 
but intelligent people learn from other people's mistakes. So are you looking down the road saying, could that happen here? Are we in the same jeopardy that they're in? Are we doing all we can to protect victims? And I'm not, you know, I'm not asking you to do anything extraordinary. I'm just talking about bringing up your professional standards. Your professional standards, when they brought up, lowers your risk of liability. It's just a, it's common sense. Better you are, what you do, the less likely you are to be sued. And again, I think it can be a good force if we study these cases carefully. You know, the higher in rank you go in policing, the more you should look at this. Who got sued? How did they get sued? Tacoma, 75 million. That's where they started. They settled at 15. That's a police chief that killed his wife. The Air Force, 75 million, I think, was what, at the end of the day, what they're going to be paying. It's almost impossible to sue the DOD, but they did because they didn't inform the local police. The guy shouldn't have had a gun. So these are big lawsuits we're seeing now. And I remember when they started out, I started looking at them in the 80s. They were 1 million, 2 million. Now they're moving up in, in number. And again, I'm not saying you should do anything that you don't normally do be a good supervisor, be a good cop, be a good uh, officer. So the question comes up, though, and it's, I've heard this in court, aren't you treating this as a distraction? So the answer to that under oath is no, I'm not. But what has happened often in these cases is what will help. They'll start grilling the chief. And I've seen this happen to chiefs and sheriffs. They'll put them on the stand and they'll say, let me ask you something, chief. Um, my experts who will be testifying later on in this trial have reviewed your policy on domestic violence and it hasn't been updated in 15 years. Have the laws of Virginia changed in 15 years around domestic violence? I know the answer to that. How often do they change them in state? Every year. It's organic. That's that's the nature of these kind of crimes. It's unbelievable. No other, it, you don't usually see these kind of changes in burglary, armed robbery, theft, larceny, domestic violence. We do because there is an incredible test bed in this country of advocates and, and legal aid attorneys and shelter workers and victims who are constantly asking for more protection, making the law easier. The stalking law, when it came out back in the early 90s, is not the stalking law today. It's much easier for prosecutors and police. It evolved and changed. The services we offer victims, that has changed. Therefore, the law has changed. So when you don't put that legal change in your policy, here's what will happen. And this is the most incredible thing. You'll, you'll see a, a, a police chief on the stand now say, would you please tell the jury what you're looking at? Oh, that's my policy on domestic violence. Okay, good. Four pages? That's it? Okay. So, Chief, we looked around the state of Virginia, and we went to Richmond PD, and we got their policy because, you know, Richmond enforces the same law that you, that you enforce, so you should be doing similar things. And would you take a look at Richmond's policy and tell the jury how many pages it is? Oh, it looks like it's about 22. So you've got four pages on your policy, but Richmond's got 22. Would you please tell the jury why is it that the police chief in Richmond has hired the stupidest police officer in the state of Virginia? And they must be stupid because they need 22 pages of instruction to investigate a crime of domestic violence where your officers only need four. This is the rope adult. This is where you're starting to look really bad. And they'll say, by the way, chief, I don't see anywhere in here where you have modified your, your policy for years. So not only is it out of date, you've got the most complex crime police have ever investigated with only four pages of instruction, would you please tell the jury how you managed to do that? 
So now what's going on here is you're sinking quick. That's what they do. They take good police work. They take good, you know, solid police policy procedure, and they beat you over the head with it. I've seen this over and over and over and over again. That's just the first step. There's more here. And then I'll ask you, well, you know, what the intent of the law is, by the way. And, and this is the question a lot of people sometimes don't get. What is the intent of the law? When they enacted the laws around domestic violence, what did you think they wanted to get out of it? The answer should be to protect victims and hold defenders accountable. Sometimes we miss that. And then when you say it, here's what the lawyers say. So your job under Virginia law is to protect victims, but that didn't happen in this case, did it? And your officers didn't arrest this person for violating a protective order. So, it, 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 and they're there, they, are, they already know. They've got an expert witness report lined out explaining why this is all wrong, why you're doing it wrong. And it's historic. You know, we, Kansas City, Dallas versus Watson, Sorchetti versus New York, over and over and over and over again. It seemed like the same stories. Like they didn't arrest, this was a police officer case. Stalking his wife, she went into the station in Kansas City, said, help, help, I need your help. My husband, I've left him, he stalked at me. And he came in behind her at the police station. Sergeant got up from the desk and said, oh, he works for us. Is that your husband? Yeah. Well, let me do this. Go on home, honey, you'll be all right. I'll hold on to him while you run. This is what Sergeant said. She, she went home. He was there waiting on her. Took her hostage, locked his kids in the back bedroom, stabbed her, raped her. She jumped through a plate glass window, and they never saw it, and called police. He fled the scene and killed himself. This has happened many, 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 many times. Letting a police officer basically just run free. This is why modern policing, you cannot police today without a policy. You can, but you're risking a lot by not having a policy on what you do with officers involved in domestic or sexual violence. We don't know the numbers. Federal government doesn't require numbers, but the guess is we have a million police officers in the country. And if we reflect the public, which 10 to 15% of the public's involved in domestic violence, that means we've got 60 to 180,000 police families right now that are experiencing domestic violence. 60 to 180,000. The Brits have a higher number. They've been working on this a little bit longer. So when you see these kind of cases where the defense law, the, the plaintiff's attorneys come in, they show you've got a different standard, like arresting victims of domestic violence versus other cases, arresting offenders, you've got a problem. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of case history here. So let me show you one case in particular. And Bernetta Cockerham uh, is a friend of mine. I met her at a training in Texas years ago. She just trained the police in Kingston, Texas, uh, back last month. And Bernetta's case is interesting because she was in law enforcement for a while. She pro-police, lived across the street from the Jonathan North Carolina Police Department. She had a protective order on her husband. They separated. He was breaking the house. She called the police. They were in the front yard. She was trying to tell them he broke in the house. He left a death notice, violated the order. He drove by and she said, well, there he is. <laughs> They pulled him over and they let him go. And nobody in this room would do this. I, I believe that. And they promised her. It's over. They, and this is the thing, too, that gets police in trouble. Promising people things that you can't deliver. Because the moment you tell a crime victim, 
that we're going to fix this, it's over with, then you give them expectations of protection. That can be a real problem in court. That's a big one. Young officers do this. Older officers don't usually. Young officers, oh, we'll stop this today. Can't do that. This is, there's no way possible to offer 24-hour protection unless you put somebody in protective custody. And that's the problem with domestic violence. It just keeps going. Now we're facing, you know, reform with bail. These offenders are often out. They're not tethered. You don't know where they are. So you have to be realistic about this. And when you tell somebody you're going to do something, you got to do it. And this is what Bernetta did. She sued the Jonesville Police Department because they didn't arrest him. But there's more to the case. She contacts the documentary and film company out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and says, I'm suing my police department. I need you to film me because I want to put me on the internet as though I'm testifying about what happened to me. We've never seen them. This is the first we've ever seen. I, I predict we're going to see it again, but it worked. Because the moment her story was on the internet, the city attorney set up a case. This is Renetta Cockerham's story, and we'll talk, we'll talk on the other side. It was well done, too. After I took out the restraining order on Richard, he would just taunt me. I was being stalked. He would call and make threats. He would threaten family members. Just unimaginable stuff for them. Kids just love one another. And uh, Candace. We were looking at college because she was six months away from graduating. I felt safe at home. It's the police department. So close to me. I could practically wave to the secretary sitting at her desk. I believed in law enforcement. I believed in that restraining order. Somehow he broke into the house. But he left me a note. We'll die. I will kill you. From time to time, I would see Richard across the street digging. They were like graves, like a fresh cut of grave. I would call the police. All the time, police would, would roll through and he would be gone. He called me and in some more detail told me, I'm going to put you and your children in those graves. It's never a break. Never a break from July to November. That's a bomb, scary to pop.
So after he killed his daughter, he doused himself in kerosene and he burned him, burned himself alive. And um, what Renetta's uh, lawyers did, they deposed the officers. Now, if you've been through a deposition lately, it's usually videotaped. It's a legal process, it's part of the court process. The, you know, the judges somewhat govern it, but it's a legal thing. It's, it's a, this is the first step in a lawsuit. And you're under oath. I mean, they're filming you. And this is what they did. They filmed these officers. They took the depositions from the officers. They put that on the internet as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is hardball. Again, we've never seen anything quite like this before in a lawsuit. I, I've got all of them, but this one kind of stands out to me. And I wanted to explain for you. This is uh, one of the officers who did not arrest him when she identified him as a suspect. Try to obtain positive ID. What's the best way to obtain positive ID? Have been to look at the driver's license or the driver's license. And looked at the driver's license and seen Mr. Richard Allen's name and picture on his driver's license. Would have arrested him right here. What other kind of investigation would you think if you actually saw his vehicle in close proximity to this property in the building? What other investigation would you think? Who did? If I had stopped him there, I could have located him. So the thing is, if I could have located him and stopped him there, we're going to have to prove that he's not just driving down a public road. So, great country, he, he drive down a public road if he keeps. Yeah, but for those and, and we can, can, can speculate all you want. Now, first of all, there's no speculation there. Um, she positively identified him as the man in the protective order and the pregnant in her home, and they let him go. Now, again, nobody would do this in this room. Well, he said something I thought was kind of interesting. He needed more investigation. Look, I, and this is my feeling on it, because I've analyzed these cases carefully over the years, even in my own agency. That means he didn't believe her. So a warning is this. When a victim goes before a judge and reaches a level of credibility to get a protective order issued by the state, that puts credibility all over that victim. Judges just don't hand these things out. They rule based on their judgment whether this should be a specially protected person. And which means that the law enforcement agency in that jurisdiction now has to protect. By the way, not only that, protective orders are federalized. They've been, the Violence Against Women Act 94 made it, a, when you get an order in Virginia, you come to Nashville, you're going to get served. It's full faith and credit. It's just like my driver's license is good here. It's good in, uh, in in Albany, New York. That's full faith. My marriage license is good here, like it is in California. That's full faith and credit. Protective orders also full faith and credit. So it's pretty powerful uh, document. And in this case, he was making excuses for the guy. You can drive down the road if you want to. Well, the guy did. He killed his daughter. So when the city saw it, they settled this case. So. 
I predict we're going to see more strategies like this in, in lawsuits against communities. And as I said earlier, it's it's either too much or it's not enough. Too much pursuit, too much strain, you know, too much use of force. Uh, and, and right now, the whole country is looking at deadly force. It's, it's we've looked at it for years. Now we're going, you know, we're looking at it closer again. Um, and it's gotten a lot of police departments in trouble. Taking the chokehold out of policing. I and mean, this has got nothing to do with domestic violence, but now we're seeing these things happen around the country with law enforcement. But with these kind of cases, it's you know not doing enough. It's not filing, uh, not uh, enforcing a protective order. It's not actually giving victims all their their legal rights. I'll, I'll show you some of the examples. But this is the whole general, you know, relationship, the public duty doctrine. You have to protect, right? But there's a limit to that. But if there's a specific statute, if there's a mandate, that's there's none negotiations there. You can't change the law. So that special relationship comes into play, right? As long as long as you don't violate what the law requires you to do, um, you know, law enforcement now is struggling with qualified immunity. That's a whole other issue that law enforcement is looking at. And qualified immunity keeps you out of lawsuit waters, but not when someone has rights, statutory rights, that you violated by not performing your duties. That's what gets you in trouble. Uh, here's some of the other things that we get in trouble over. With special relationships. We've created or assumed a custodial relationship towards a person. Uh, somebody gets injured while in the back seat of your patrol car. Um, suspect gets injured uh, while they're in custody. We're responsible for these people and they get hurt. That could get us in hot water. We're aware of a specific risk of harm. Now, here's the thing, too, that a lot of police departments miss. What do you think? The first connection is with a crime victim in a police or sheriff department where a special relationship can be created. Where do you think that happens? I'm on one. That's it. My name is Phyllis Smith. My husband is Bill. There's a protective order. He's outside my house right now. I need the police. Now, you can't judge the time. Nobody can promise that. But you, how do you categorize that? Priority one, they're on the way, man. They violate the order. It's okay, it's a priority three. A car will get there in an hour or so. See the problems, right? So the dispatchers have to understand their part of the process as well with a specific risk of harm. Replace the person in a position of danger. Um, example, this would be the Wallace LAPD. Wallace, Ms. Wallace witnessed a murder. She told LAPD, testified. LAPD detectives didn't tell her this was a gang member. Gang had killed a lot of people. They told her that she probably wouldn't have been testified. He killed her. Gang members killed her. They sued. They didn't inform her of the dangers. This is why a lot of state laws now say you must warn victims the offender can bail out of jail. You have to prepare yourself, right? This is not a guarantee. They can't get out. But putting a position person uh, person in danger or telling them to do something. Years ago, people called the stalking cases. And the police would say, well, I get myself a gun. Really? That's your advice to a victim. Or I'd shoot him and drag him into the house from the front porch. This is crazy. I don't know where this stuff comes from. Mayberry, maybe. I don't know where they get these ideas. But they don't work, right? So giving people the wrong advice is pretty dangerous. And then committing themselves to protect them a person. That's protectable. 
this is a big one. I, I could spend a lot of time talking about particular cases again, but I'm not. And then the qualified immunity, I talked about this. It protects and shields the governments and police, but not if there's a mandatory provision in the law, right? And then you look at cases like this. I mean, I heard earlier the issue you have a translation in your case. In this case, federal way outside Seattle, woman had a protective order. The respondent was Korean. He didn't speak English, but she was married to him. She spoke Korean. The police got on the scene. They let her serve her order on him. Instead of looking for a Korean speaker to serve the order, and they did, and he wasn't ordered off the property, they left, he killed her. So the language can be a problem in these cases. And that's why you have to work this language barrier out right away in these cases. But I have to tell you, it's sort of in, in the long run here, and I, um, some of you may have heard of a case that happened back in the 80s called the Tracy Thurman case. This is the Tracy. So some of you have heard about this case. So her lawyer was the first litigator I ever talked to about lawsuits and policing because he sued Torrington police. And Tracy Thurman was the watershed case. This was the big one. It was the first major lawsuit where police said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Because the battered women's movement, let me just give you the history real quick here. Battered women's movement from the mid-70s through the mid-80s said to American policing, we're over you. Now, they weren't mad at a particular individual, but they told American policing, we're over you. We've begged, we've asked, we've pleaded for you to train your police, to write policies, to do the right thing. You're not doing it, so we're going to the next higher level. So they started using activism. They took the example from the Civil Rights Movement. They went to legislators, and they said, the police aren't going to do it, so we want you to pass laws. So all of the United States, these laws started appearing on you must transport to a safe place. You must offer assistance for an order. You are put warrant. You must arrest. They just started popping up, and police said, "What is this all about? What is this all about?" And the advocates said, "We asked you to get involved in this, and you refused. So we went to a higher power. So once the laws were created, the police rushed to catch up and said, "Okay, all right, we'll train police. We'll start arresting. We'll start writing policies." And up until that time, most agencies didn't have policies on domestic violence. I remember those years very well. And I had police chief tell me, policies on domestic violence. You don't have a policy on deadly force. Why don't we have a domestic violence policy? Right. So policy started appearing around the country, police policy, right? But Weinstein, Burton Weinstein, who's Tracy Thurman's lawyer, told me, he said, Mark, when I sued Torrington, she had called Torrington police, we think at least 50 times for help, and they refused her. She separated from her husband named Buck. He wore a big Buck knife. They had a child in common. He was stalking her here in Torrington, Connecticut. She kept calling and calling and calling and calling. There was no stalking law, so they told her, something has to happen to you before you get involved. Yeah. So one day he came to the house. He wanted to take the child. She was trying to protect her son. He was screaming, come out, come out. They made a movie on this, by the way. Some of you have probably seen the movie. She called the police. It took the officer 45 minutes to get there because he had to stop to use the bathroom on the way. You, you know why they sued. Once they got on the scene, the, law, the officer was so confused, he grabbed the wrong person, and somebody said, no, he's not the suspect. The guy in the ambulance climbing on top of his wife 
So he just stabbed him, the suspect. But that's when he arrested him. And while he was there, he kicked her in the head, the husband, while the officer was there, and broke her neck. So now she's paralyzed and bleeding to death. She lived. And Weinstein said, I put her on the stand. She only testified out of one side of her face because this side of her face was paralyzed. And she said, I called to the police 50 times. And the police chief in Revolta said, that's a lie. We think she only called us 25 times. Yeah. Now, look, this is not normal. I mean, y'all, we forgot that, right? This is not, but at the time, the 80s, it was common. We saw stuff like this all over the country. And uh, the, the judge gave her $2.3 million. This was a major lawsuit. Her lawyer told me the insurance company was in the cl- in the courtroom, and the insurance company told the police chief and the mayor, we agree with the judge. That's why we're canceling your insurance. Now, and we're not paying. So Weinstein went to the courthouse and got the deeds, the deeds of 25 police officers' homes. Th- this is hardball here. The insurance company found out and found out the entire point the police is going to be made homeless. It said, I think we'll pay this, and they paid it. This was a lawsuit that started the conversation around liability. So Weinstein told me, he said, Mark, just put it this way. There's a strategy for a litigator, and our job is to look at you like, sometimes, like you're a four-engine airplane flying through the air. Our job as a litigator is to shoot you down. The best way to do that is to start firing away at your engines, and your engines look like this. The first one we'll shoot at is your policy. Got one? Good. Got one that's inadequate? Right. Got a problem. You don't have one at all? We got you. You got a custom set of a policy. For years, police worked on customs, not policies. It, they said the state laws are policy. That's what Memphis police said in the Garner case. You know, Memphis shot a juvenile running out of a burglary in 77. I started policing in 77. Shot him running away from the house with a purse in his hand. He's a kid, broke in the house, stole the purse. They saw him, they shot him in the back and killed him. The, men, the family sued for excessive certain seizure. All the way to the Supreme Court in 1985, there stands Memphis from the Supreme Court. Why aren't you shooting him running out of a house with a purse in his hand? Because we can, they said. But Memphis said. The Supreme Court said, not anymore. Not anymore. That's, that changed deadly force forever. They didn't have a policy. They asked him, they said, where's your policy? Oh, we don't have one of those. And the Supreme Court said, wait a minute. The policy in law enforcement is your mission, it's your direction, it's your assignment, it's your priority. It, it, it's your voice to the people you work for. Why don't you have a policy? Weinstein says if you don't have an effective one, it's not up to date, that engine's on fire, and I start firing the next one, which is administration. That's you, know, you, the sergeant, the supervisor, making sure in the field the officers are doing everything they're supposed to do. Right? Every day, making sure they're doing the job, doing the job, evaluating, looking for uh, performance problems, showing what you expect your officers to do. How do you set the expectations for your officers? What do you expect from your officers? What do you demand of them when they work these cases? Are you reading the language in the report each day when they turn in the reports? Are you making sure there's no bias in the report? Today's bias is not yesterday's bias. I come from a, a racist community. I was, grew up in racism. I'm white. I know what it looks like. Racism in my father's time clearly affected diverse populations. It could be a black person, it could be a police officer in the South. 
could serve on a jury if you were black. I remember all this very well, right? That was yesterday. That was in your face racism. Today it's a little different. Are we looking for bias and prejudice and racism in our policing? I'm just a question. I'm not saying anything's happening here. I'm just saying this is what's expected out of today's leaders, right? So if we've got a bias, if we've got a gender bias, right? This could be a problem. I've had these conversations not just in the United States, but other places around the world. And some people don't like to hear it. I know the Chinese police weren't happy with me. When I started talking about, you know, civil rights, they warned us not to. How do you talk about people's civil rights if they say the word civil rights? So the question is, you know, are you administering? Are you doing what you're supposed to do to be a good cop or a good agency? If you're not, then they got you. That's one, that's the next engine on fire. And your next one is your training. Training's perishable. You imagine you're going over to Dulles and getting on a plane, you're going out to Vegas to be able to have a little vacation. The pilot keys up and says, sit back and relax. I'll have you in Las Vegas in about three hours. And when I arrive in Las Vegas, I just want to let you all know I'll be completing my flight training. <laughs> You'd be hitting the buttons saying, wait, wait a minute. What did I just hear him say? Open the door that you want to plane. Please. Because it's critical, you know, you gotta have training. But you know, the courts have said the same about policing. I could show you failure to train lawsuits all over the country because nobody is asked to do what police do. They are, and y'all know this, you're less than 1% of the population. You're filled with women and men who you could train to do absolutely anything. It's a, the oddest bunch of people I've ever been around in my life. I mean, you give them a task and they will do it, but you got to train them to do it. If you don't train them to do it, that's your fault. Oh, that's, we, we lost a major lawsuit in Nashville. We didn't train our dispatcher. A dispatcher mishandled the call. Police were delayed. Five people were killed in one domestic. We played the tape back. We listened to the dispatcher arguing with a woman who said he's coming to kill me. We thought, what in God's name is going on here? And we looked at the dispatcher's training record. There was none on domestic violence. That was our fault. You can't blame somebody for not trained. You have to train them. This is what the government service is all about. So training is a big one. It's a major one. By the way, training could be something like this. And the officers know what I'm talking about. You're the supervisor at the end of the shift. The officer comes to you and says, I got held over on domestic. Here's my report. You read it and you say, hey, hey, what? I don't, I'm not understanding this. What did you do on the case? It's not clear in my report. I need you to write me a supplemental report, clearly describe if you took somebody into custody and what is the evidence in the case and, and I'll hold over, you give it to me now. That's training. That's training. And if you're not doing that day in and day out, uh, you got a problem, right? Or you come to work, you know, you hit the station in your mailbox, you go to any police station in the country, every detail's got a mailbox. There sits a big thing rolled up in your mailbox, you pull it out, and you say, hey, Sarge, uh, what's this in my mailbox? And your sergeant says, I don't know, it's something from the chief about deadly force. Get to work. Can't do that. You have to train people on these critical issues. So this is a big one. And let me tell you, I've seen lawsuits where they bring in experts on training, and it's horrible. And I've heard all the excuses. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. Well, guess what? Going to the bank now, because now you're looking for money. And it's multi-millions of dollars, not just, you know, $85 an hour for overtime for writing a report. 
So there you go. Weinstein says, that engine's on fire. Now you're losing altitude. I almost got you on the ground. The next one I go after is your discipline. And I know, he says, what I can do here is, I know if you've got someone in your department who is going to the scene of a domestic violence call, they're not arresting, they're arresting both parties, they're not writing a report, they're checking off the call in five or 10 minutes, right? They've got some attitude or upset, or frustrated, they don't want to be there, and you know it, and you don't fix it immediately. This is absolute performance. This is what a lawyer will say, performance, performance, performance. What does your performance look like? Because what they can do, they can go in many places in the country, and they can show you some performance that's incredible. I talked about Brooklyn Park this morning. When you get a police department that's sending a police report within four hours to the prosecutor and the probation and the advocate because it's high danger, that's performance. And when, when they say, why can't you do that? What, what is the difference between a victim in Norfolk and a victim in Minneapolis? There's not any difference. So what they'll do is they'll look at your discipline. If you're not doing all you can do or you're doing less than and it's not being corrected, Weinstein said, I got you, your engines are all blown off the wings, your plane crashes, I walk over and I scoop up all your money. And that's the formula for a lawsuit. I know, I hope I haven't depressed you with talking about this, but I, we don't talk much about this in police. I think most of you will agree in law enforcement, we don't really get into this much. You know, we talk about going to the scene, collecting evidence, making arrests, doing interviews, but we don't talk about this part. This is a motivator. This is one of our cases. This is where the five people were shot or a dispatcher mishandled. And when we look at training, this is it. This is the national numbers, just to let you know. I don't know what your numbers are for your age. But in national numbers of state and uh, county and municipal police academies, you have about 843 classroom hours, 500 field training hours, only 13 hours of domestic violence training, and six hours of sex assault. This is not good. Uh, I, you know, my RH has got a 40 hour on DV now. That's a start because there's a lot of things you have to know about domestic violence calls like trauma and evidence collection and forfeiture and stalking. It's just a incredible amount of stuff you need to know. So there's a national standard. And by the way, you spend a third or, 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 or half your police career working domestic violence cases or some, some kind of relation to a domestic violence case. So again, it doesn't make any difference, it makes any sense. And then the last thing here is, this is where they get failure to take proper actions to protect, failure to pro, uh, force a court order, failure to respond at all in a timely manner, Failure to provide information to the victim required by law, arresting a citizen without proper call, exhibiting a pattern of differential treatment or application of the law. By the way, this differential treatment is officer involved cases. And I'll end it with this. Um, I was sitting in the office, in the homicide office, and this woman came to the, we had walk ins at Nashville for years, they don't do it anymore. She walked up to the counter, secretary was sitting there, she had a black eye and broke a nose, by the way. But this is a domestic. We knew it right off. And so she talked to the receptionist. The lieutenant met her. Lieutenant walked her past all of us in the squad room, took her in the captain's office. They were there about 30 minutes. They walked out. She was crying. They walked to the front door headquarters. She left and never came back. Her husband worked in the detective division. They walked her right out of the police station. And she'd been assaulted by one of our detectives. That's where we were. We were there. Um, 
The problem with these cases is when you do that, police husbands and police wives don't report because they know that's going to happen. And that's what was going on with my agency. And I, I'm proud of my agency. I, I risked my life for my agency in my community. I do anything for my agency. But they treated family members of, of police officers differently. They didn't get the same kind of protection. Finally, you know, the chief said, what are they going to do about it? And I, he asked me, he said, you, you, we're going to change this protocol for designing our domestic violence division. And I said, if you let us, we'll do it. He said, if you come to my house, I hate my wife. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to lock your ass up. Excuse me. And then I realized I just told the chief I'd lock him up. I didn't, I don't know what I was thinking. I think I lost my mind for a minute. All these captains in the room will watch this thing. You are crazy, Sergeant. We've ever seen in the police department. You just started with the police chief. And he didn't say anything for a few minutes. He looked at me. And I thought, this is it. I mean, I, I can get a job at DPS. They have nice uniforms. <laughs> they, they don't work on Sundays. They're off. They get stock options. I mean, at least I, you know, everybody likes you. Everybody likes the UPS man. Right here they come to you. Who's not like the UPS? The dog maybe not like you. They start another career right here. And then he said this. He said, that's exactly what you're supposed to say. Then we started working cases, started building reputation. Victims started calling us. Police wives started calling us. Police, male police officers, male police officers started walking in my office saying, I'm in trouble. My wife, she hits me. I can't, I'm afraid to do anything. I need help. Can you get me out of this? I'm going to lose my job. That's when you see that kind of thing happen. That tells you something about trustworthiness of, of a police department. And they've been doing that ever since. Fully open transparency. Public service absolutely demands transparency. Doesn't work any other way. And, and look, and when you don't offer services, it give you 10 years of that too. So I brought all this with me. Helped change my police department. Uh, they're on track. They're still doing wonderful things today. I, I've recently been put on the community oversight board by the city council. And, and if you know what oversight boards are, Police farmers don't like them. And I was amazed. City Council asked me when I sit on the board, I said, I'm a retired cop. I'm a member of the FP. We want you to be on the oversight board. Oversight board is to watch the police to make sure they don't do something illegal. So I've been on this board for a while. It's been interesting. But I had to tell all these board members, I know what police reform looks like. We've done it before. And it's not over. We're going to do it again. Part of that reform is looking at the climate inside of the police department. What is the climate look like? How do you feel about violence against women? How do you get along with the advocates? Are you judges on your coordinating council? Do you obviously reach out to your prosecutor so we don't have cases fall between the cracks? Have you analyzed your homicides? Do you have a high-risk assessment team? How successful are you in prosecuting your rape cases? Are you training your police officers to understand the consent defense? All those things you know, can happen when a community starts to work together. And I'm proud of my community. We're doing a lot of good work, but I'm nobody's fool. This is something that has, you can't do it once and say, we, we did that, we're done with it. This is something that has to be constant. It's got to be cheerleading, 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 cheerleading. It's not all, I mean, look, you all get this, uh, you know, it, men didn't start killing women yesterday. Matter of fact, if, if you're a Christian, First murder was a domestic homicide. We all know the Bible, I'm sure. So this is not over. We've still got a long way to go. And which means that you've got to leave something as a legacy 
for being here. And part of your legacy, I think, is to mentor the next generation of police officers and dispatchers and advocates, and prosecutors and judges, because it's not over. We've got generations yet to fix this. I, I believe that firmly. I don't think this is it. It's not over. Um, we're still going to be dealing with domestic violence in the next generation. My father dealt with it. My great grandfather dealt with it. I've seen it. It's just something that's in our society, but we've got a solution to it. And part of that, you know, solution is that gentle pressure, relentlessly applied, will get us to where we need to go. So that's my sort of last statement on this. Now, you've got my email address. Uh, I, I'm, I'm open to any of it. If you want to ask me for information about about BIP, about protective orders, about, you know, List risk assessment, lethality assessment, policy, sex assault, stalking. The great thing about uh, the, my job is that I know some really, really, really smart people. I have to tell you, I you know I I feel like Forrest Gump most of the time. I do that. I swear I do. Because I, I I look around the room. I'm in sometimes thinking, damn, boy, they they wouldn't let me in here if they knew who I was. And I listen to these people because there are some of our country's leaders on these issues. Um, and if I don't know the answer to the question, I'll find somebody's got the answer for it. Uh, and I want to thank again, Josephine, for having me come here today. And I appreciate you all uh, coming in this room in, in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a pandemic to hear about domestic violence, which is, tells me a lot about you. So thank you for coming and God bless you and be safe in your work. Appreciate it all. Thank you.